Welcome to Howden's new podcast, Fortune Favours the Brave. We all take risks in our everyday life and business is no different. In this podcast, we're speaking to the experts about a topical challenge or issue and what business leaders can do to overcome it. Welcome to Howden's podcast, Fortune Favours the Brave. My name is John Baldridge and I'm the Executive Director and Head of the Legal Practices Group here at Howden Insurance Brokers. In today's podcast, we want to focus on an issue that is proving to be something of a conundrum for many law firms, one that involves quite a considerable amount of uncertainty and risk. It is the issue of putting things right for a client when you've done something wrong. Today, I have with me Paul Bennett from Bennett Briegel. Paul is a specialist in professional practice in the legal world and is often engaged by law firms to advise on regulatory issues. He's also written two books on the rules of four solicitors and law firms, which are available from all good bookshops. So a very warm welcome to you, Paul. Would you like to tell our audience a little more about yourself and what it is you do? Thanks, John. Um, I've actually written three books. Three? Three. So uh, obviously the third one wasn't good enough to uh, to, to make your book (laughs) um, or wasn't relevant enough. So I specialise in advising law firms. About 75% of my clients are Um, law firms and then the remainder will be a mix of judges, barristers or individual solicitors with either complaint problems or something like a a, a judicial complaint for judges or a BSB or or SRA investigation. So I do act for a small number of individual solicitors but dominated by law firms. Thank you. As you know, we always start our podcast with an icebreaker that is focused on risk. So can you tell us about an occasion when you took a risk and how it worked out for you? Yeah, well, John, you and I know each other well, so you won't be surprised that this story starts in a pub. <laughs> um, it was January 2017. I met some friends in a, in a, in a pub and one of them who'd done a couple of um, sort of charity cycle rides 10 years before, had decided over Christmas he'd put on too much timber. And he turned to me and he said, Benno, you've put on too much timber too. Will you cycle from coast to coast with me? And the rest, as they say, is history and that I've now done two coast to coast cycle rides. I've cycled from London to Paris and I've cycled Belgium and, and, and France as well. So I've, in total, I've done 10 charity bike rides in the in the last six years thoroughly enjoyed them a little bit healthier but um when i agreed to do it i hadn't actually been on a bike for about 20 years so it was a bit of a risk at the time stabilizers on the first one or were you were you good to go uh, i had a um a hybrid bike <laughs> and i ended up spending far too much money on a on a road bike to do all the challenges on but uh, at, at least i've enjoyed myself well the thought of you in lycra is uh, is is too much for me <laughs> so i think we should move on to the uh, topic of our podcast we understand that under the code of conduct for solicitors solicitors have a responsibility to put things right when they have gone wrong but the decision of the disciplinary tribunal and Howell Jones back in 2019 suggests that you could end up in trouble if you do just that. Can I ask you to give us a bit more background on the Howell Jones case and how that fits or perhaps doesn't fit with the requirements under the code? Yeah, thanks. Um, the Howell Jones case is it is an odd one. There's certainly a feeling that it might be an outlying case because of the the background to it, but the the basic case facts are that there was a divorce settlement, Hal James were acting for the husband, and that shortly after the settlement had been resolved and signed off and completed, he complained to the, the firm 
saying that actually he thought they'd made a, a poor deal on his behalf and advised him to take a poor deal. The firm did the right thing in many ways. They went and got advice from counsel. They reported it to their insurers is, is, is the understanding that, that you and I both have from what's in the public domain. And uh, certainly it's a matter of record that they were given two options. One was to send the client away for independent legal advice from a separate firm and effectively to withdraw at the time. Or the second was to try and put things right. And they took the second option. The other party obviously wasn't interested in and renegotiating the settlement. They made an application to the court to try and set aside the the settlement on on the grounds of the terms of reached weren't uh, entirely appropriate and fair. Actually, the court rejected that and made a thirty five thousand pound cost award against Hal Jones. So that's the broad background. The firm, you know, was in contact with their insurers. They took advice from counsel. They were told that it was safe to to take one of those two, the, those two options, but then of course it gets a little bit murky because it's it's about whether or not the firm's own interests were compromised. And of course, t- twenty nineteen when this case occurred is just at that period when the SRA were rewriting the rule book to what we now have, which is the SRA standards and regulations, and that seems to be a situation where the SRA's position is hardened if there is an own interest conflict, then they appear to have imposed an absolute ban on a firm acting off the back of the Howell Jones case. So take a very straightforward example. I understand that historically, it's been quite common for a law firm to continue to act for a client and make an application under Section 33 of the Limitations Act for extension of a limitations period they might have missed. In light of the Howell Jones case, should firms stop doing that in the future? And if they do, could that be considered a failure of their obligation under the code to put things right? Yeah, well, I think if we start by looking at what, what the code actually says, the solicitor's code for individual solicitors at M711 and, and the firm code at 3.5. So listeners who are solicitors will be familiar with the fact that since 2019, there's two codes of conduct, one for firms and one for the individuals, and both say exactly the same thing. You are honest and open with clients if things go wrong. And if a client suffers a loss or a harm as a result, you put matters right if possible and explain fully effectively the right things to do so and what the options are and what the likely consequences are. So when you start to look at that wording, you can see that even the SRA's own wording is about you put matters right if possible. But actually, what does their guidance, which was issued in conjunction with the code, says? It, it, and I'm going to paraphrase rather than, than quote, but it says, effectively, how complex and costly is the remedial action is one of the, the tests that you need to apply. Is the outcome certain or does it rely upon third parties? Because that could influence whether or not it's appropriate to carry on or not. And does the client need to consider a claim against the firm and actually weighing that claim risk against the benefits of continuing to act? And of course, what those three tests do that the SRO set out is they're all fact specific. So the problem that I've got and your claims handling teams have gotten, the insurance firms that act in conjunction with Hayden as claims handlers, is each case is assessed on its own merits. And that lack of black and white 
effectiveness is a real problem. And, and looking at the, you know, you know, the Section 33 of the Limitation Act, that's your classic one, whereas it's caught by, you know, you're having to rely upon the actions of third parties. So the answer to that is actually going to depend on a case by case basis. And that's our difficulty with uh, the Hal Jones decision. But it isn't just the Hal Jones decision. It's how the SRA has gone on in the months after that to interpret that and put out its own guidance. It's very black and white in terms of what you can theoretically do, but it's absolute shades of grey in practice. Well, clearly the issue of whether an own interest conflict exists or whether there is a significant risk that one might arise can be tricky to get right. Do you have any tips for firms on how they should approach the decision on whether or not to act? I suppose in fairness, we should remind our audience that Howell Jones did carefully consider the issue of conflict and sought advice from counsel, whose view at the time was that they, they, they could proceed. Yeah, and, and I've got some sympathy with them because they did take that really productive step. If I look at my own caseload, when I'm advising firms on conflict of interest, if a barrister's given an opinion, I'll be honest, I tend to attract, attach very little weight to it. The job of a barrister and the conflict of interest rules for barristers is very different. And with very few exceptions, those who specifically advise on solicitor issues and negligence issues, with outside of that tight cohort, actually the barrister might be, there is always a danger that the barrister might be thinking of their own the rules of conduct rather than the solicitors, and they are different. I don't know whether that was the case here or not, so I'm not criticising the barrister in the case that set out the, 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 the two options. But I think certainly what I always say to, to people is look at those three tests that the SRA have published and take it outside of the team that's dealing with it. One of the most common issues I see is a client's been a good client, there's a good relationship there between solicitor and client. They want to do the right thing. They want to be they want to be ethical, but they also want to what want to morally do the right thing by their client. And I will say lift that away. Look at it from a cold heart. Ideally, um, you know, in larger firms that's general counsel taking a look at the issue and making a note of the reasons why it's appropriate to act or why it's appropriate to refer to another law firm. If you don't have a general counsel, because uh, you're a smaller firm like my, my own is, then the COLP should be making that decision ideally. And if that's not possible, then come out to somebody like me. And, you know, there's not just me, there's many others out there that are giving advice on conflict of interest so that they get that solicitor's perspective on what the SRA expectations are. But I think the key thing for me is recording the reasoning, but also making sure that that judgment is independent of A, the person who's made the mistake, and B, the team where that mistake has happened. Because, of course, there is a loyalty to, yep. to your colleagues. And I think if you do that either internally or externally, if you can demonstrate that independence, even if with hindsight you get it wrong, the SRA won't take the action that they took in Al Jones. But it, it, it's crucial um, to keep written records of all important decisions and considerations as defending your position without them is going to be so much more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the code of conduct and the, the SRA principles and all of the supporting material that's come out since the 2019 changes, they all make clear that the, the idea of those changes was to empower solicitors to use their judgment, but their judgment must be within the band of reasonable professional responses. And where the SRA have looked at 
some of the issues that I've looked at, they've always formed the same view, which is, is it within that band of reasonable responses? If it is, they close the case, no further action, which is why I don't think we've seen a whole follow-on cases and why we're still talking about Hal Jones and the, the, the complications from it all these years later. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost four years later. Mm. And what about the scenario where you think there is or might be an, an interest conflict, the client is adamant they want you to continue? First and foremost, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, it, it's, you know, apply your decision making, you know, record it, take it away from the individual who's got that client relationship. If you're not certain, get advice. If if you want the cover of be, being able to say, we've been told not to do this, go out and get some advice and never compromise your own professional judgment for the for the satisfaction of a client they won't thank you for it in 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 the long term and for me that's one of the key takeaways of of, of how jones it, it's trying to do the right thing because at the time the client thinks it's the right thing but actually with hindsight it's not um, and i say hindsight because in that case not only was the 35000 pound cost award in the in the county court there was also in addition the client involved complained to the legal ombudsman about the poor quality of the advice received and then the outcome received and the legal ombudsman imposed its maximum fine of £50,000 in addition to that. So, of course, you know, that relationship, you know, can change over time. So, don't be led by the, the client relationship. Think about it objectively. Think about it in terms of how you would justify it to the legal ombudsman, to the SRA, to the court actually to your other partners, if you're a partner in a firm listening to this and you're thinking, have we got this one right? You might think, I really want to go into bat for the person in my team, but actually take it away from from yourself, make it a, something that objectively works. I mean, is, is the SRA uh, ethics helpline um, worthwhile Considering in in circumstances such as this, I, I can think, see you're smiling. At I, I I think I think <laughs> I um, managed to stifle my my, my laughter. Look, mm. the, the ethics helpline has a place, and that place is quite narrow. Um, if you're not sure what the rules are, if you're if you're not sure where to find all of the relevant material, they'll find that for you because they'll refer you to that. Um, what they won't do is give safe harbour advice, so it's not binding. It's always caveated by its on the details that are known to them. And of course, it's really hard to give that ethical guidance when they perhaps are dealing with hundreds of calls a day. Yeah. Um, and the thing I would say about the ethics helpline, and you know, if any of my clients are listening to this, they'll know that one of the things we sometimes do is we we submit something in writing to the to the ethics team at the SRA, and uh, we get something back from them. It's a comfort blanket. It's a reason for justifying your professional judgment, but it doesn't actually move forward the fact that you need to make that professional judgment. And most importantly, you need to be able to demonstrate through the records, the contemporaneous decision making. So again, you know, just to bring it to life, I can think of a case um, I've had on recently where the firm continued to act for a period of six or seven months. They never took advice from somebody like me in the early stages. They took advice from specialist counsel in the legal area. Um, and of course, what happens is over six or seven months, that relationship with that client breaks down. 
And that's when they come out for advice. And instantly what you can see is, because the, the SRA test on own interest conflict, it isn't just if it exists at the time, it's if there's a significant risk. And that significant risk is really difficult to define. So that's what really needs to be in the heart of the the firm's own judgment. And that's why taking it away from the individual's thinking in terms of the ethics helpline has a place, but I've still got to be able to objectively justify why I did that. And in the case I mentioned, you could see that the firm's th thinking was changing over a period of months. So what we've been able to do is to say to the SRA, look, here's the thinking evolving. That was the right thing to do at X point in time. And they've withdrawn at this point in time because actually the relationship's broken down and the client doesn't have confidence in them to put things right, even though they probably could. And I think that's the key thing with understanding the, the context of, of, of the ethical assessment. It's that individual professional judgment. Excellent. And you mentioned earlier that that you think that the Hal Jones case is a, is, is a bit of an outlier. Um, so do you think there's a possibility that a future decision of the SDT or an appeal might consider the Hal Jones decision went maybe a bit too far or at least provide some clarity on the issue? Yeah, I'm not, sh I'm not sure that it the SDT will do that. The SDT decisions aren't binding. They're, they're first instance decisions. They're not an appeal decision. So I don't think it'll be dealt with in, in, that, in that way. It's not a decision of the high court or above. So we're not going to see precedent law um, and case law kick in in quite that way that we're, we're used to in probably other decisions that you and I are looking at involving um, law firms and and claims against them. But certainly there's been fierce criticism of the Hal Jones decision. The one that's that stuck in my mind and I went back and I reread preparing for this is um, Greg Treverton Jones, um, King's Counsel, who's um, well known for acting in the SDT. Um, I've done some cases with Greg over the years and, you know, he's probably the, the leading QC in, in that area. And he wrote a piece in the immediate aftermath of Hal Jones, which I think is worth just, just quoting from. And he certainly is arguing that the SRA got it wrong. And he said uh, back in May of 2019, so six months before they issued their advice, the SRA does not seem to consider that an own interest conflict can be cured by the sort of pragmatic solution that has been in place for decades but the only winners will be professional negligence lawyers and the principal loser will be the reputation of the profession. When you think back to the, the SRA's obligation under the Legal Services Act to promote the legal profession, promote access to justice, I'm not sure this is anything other than a known goal from them. I think they've been a little bit too restrictive. I know the team at the SRA well that wrote the um, the two codes of conduct. They were um, kind with one of the books that, that you mentioned to share all of their material months before it came out so that I could write um, one, of those, one of those books. You know, they're well-intentioned. They're good people. They're um, highly competent. You know, they, the SRA get a lot of stick. They get most things right is my experience of dealing with them. It's just tedious how long everything takes. And it's tedious when they get things wrong that they're, um, they're not able to take something that's an outlying decision 
and and see it as that they think they have to reduce everything to the lowest common denominator because of course they're regulating 9500 odd law firms and i think what we'll see over time is a greater understanding of what they mean by an own interest conflict. I don't think that's currently well defined, and I don't think having just Hal Jones out there is particularly helpful to the profession. But we know from other circumstances where their advice is a bit fence city. So I'm thinking of the banking facility um, issue. I'm thinking in relation to the current issue of SLAP's strategic um, litigation against public protection. We know that their position evolves over time. You know, the banking facility position they set out in 2014, they set out a completely contrary position you know, four years later, well, they never they never held their hands up and said, we got this wrong. That's not how they work. They just say, this is what good practice looks like. And I think that good practice will change. And I think there will be some clarity about an own interest conflict moving forward. I think Greg was right, but he is against the tide of where the SRA were in 2019. And I think over time, we'll see a, a, a clarity starting to develop. Well, we'll all look forward to that. Paul, many thanks for your time today. It's been really interesting to hear your take on the issue. I certainly sympathise with any listeners who are grappling with this decision on whether they should act in this situation. I'm sure they will find your insight very, very helpful. Thanks, John. Cheers. Thank you also to our listeners. We hope you've enjoyed the content covered in this episode. If you have any questions or would like to learn more about what's being covered, we would love to hear from you please feel free to contact us or reach out through LinkedIn. Contact details for Paul and further information on this topic can be found at bennettbriegel.co.uk. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fortune Favours the Brave from Howden. To hear more episodes and subscribe to our channel, search Fortune Favours the Brave on your favourite podcast app.